Welcome to Volunteer Plain Talk Podcast, the podcast for today's leaders of volunteers. Your host is me, Meridian Swift. Everybody. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Jesse Bollinger, who has written a new book called Calling All Volunteers. We talk about adding work, education, and mental health to Maslow's hierarchy of needs as it applies to recruiting and retaining volunteers. We also talk about what our new normal is in volunteer management, the Generation Alpha that is coming up, and what they mean for volunteering in the future. The Happiness Project, and Dr. Bollinger's new project, which is starting conversations with senior management in volunteer organizations about the direction of volunteerism. Hi, and welcome to Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Uh, we're talking today with Dr. Jesse Bollinger. And Dr. Bollinger, I wanted to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Your new book entitled calling all volunteers, wanted to chat with you a little bit about some of your ideas in the book. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, absolutely. You know, I, I've got an interesting background, uh, Meridian, and and it's a background that, that quite honestly probably never should have led to where we are today. Uh, I was born, in, born and raised in, in a small town in Iowa, uh, Creston, Iowa, and and just kind of a fun trivia fact, any of your listeners that are bun, Bunomatic coffee maker users, uh, if your Bunomatic breaks, um, it comes to Creston for repair. <laughs> um, we, also, we also used to manufacture something called gummy bears. Oh. Uh, one of the, I believe one of the original factories uh, was in Creston. Uh, started by the Metterer family from Germany. Hmm. So that's just kind of some fun fun trivia. Uh, I was born with hydrocephalus, which a lot of people, um, especially in the 70s and 80s, would call it water on the brain. And it's mm-hmm. an increase, a uh, buildup of cerebral spinal fluid around the brain. And and normally what, what that will do is it will cause uh, fairly significant and sometimes irreparable damage uh, to the brain, causing uh, a variety of uh, cognitive and, and physical issues, cerebral cerebral palsy, uh, uh, cognitive uh, delay, that sort of thing. And and in me, um, apparently, even though the doctor said, hey, we're going to have all these issues, uh, my my resulting issue was uh, a significant loss of sight. And that was really it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're talking 1983. And then when I go to school, of course, it's, you know, 1985, 86, uh, you know, kind of preschool age. And, and they're saying, hey, uh, self-contained classrooms, uh, school for the blind, that kind of thing. And, and my parents, for whatever reason, said, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to, uh, to mainstream. And they did. And we worked through all these things. And so I got a real early jump on a real quality education and qu- uh, quality community involvement. And so as I grew, uh, I would eventually join 4-H, which, you know, is heavily involved in in volunteer service, uh, community, uh, maybe not community activism, but but you learn a lot of 
this self-advocacy skills and communication skills and, and the like. Uh, and, and, and so that was very helpful. As I got into high school, people started to say, well, Jesse, you know, will you help with, you know, whatever it may be, the teen center, the, uh, you know, something special with 4-H, the state 4-H technology council, uh, or not the, not the 4-H uh, council, but the tech, yeah, the technology group that we had at the time and, and these kinds of things. And so I was very heavily involved. Moved on to a bachelor's in communications, eventually a bachelor's in communications. I started out as an IT major, mm. but discovered that I that my communication skills were not being used uh, sitting behind a computer writing code. Mm. So I was able to really build in all this stuff that I had learned throughout my lifetime, and all of a sudden, and and any of your listeners that are that are listening, and so I was a student at Graceland University. Uh, which is a small small school in in Lamoni, Iowa. Uh, when I was there, the the student body was was maybe about twelve hundred students. And a guy by the name of Tom Powell approached me. Um, and the interesting thing about Tom is he was the longest serving dean of students in pri- Iowa private college history. Wow. Yes, yes, quite a deal. And he said, Jesse, you you are going to join our leadership program and. So I resisted, but of course I did it. And and then he <laughs> you, and then he said, "Well, you're going to join our nonprofit leadership program as well." Uh, and of course I resisted. Well, I did it, and eventually that led to that led to a master's in nonprofit management. And once again, once again, my my mentor uh, at the time, mm-hmm. Dr. Gary Smith, said, "Jesse, you are going to go get your PhD." And I resisted. Well. Uh, we see how how that turned out. Yeah. So, you know, it's been an interesting journey. And I and I think had people not had my parents not said, uh, you know, a pretty firm series of yeah. no's uh, that we're not going to to do things as as were being done at the time, we wouldn't be here. And so my background is varied. You know, I've worked in technology. I've worked in real estate. Uh, at one point, I was the second youngest uh, person to get a real estate license in the state of Iowa. Uh, doing doing that when I was nineteen, you know. So it's so I've I've done a lot of things, and and they all, in one way or another, tie back to volunteering or skills that have helped my research background, my communication skills, all these different things, and and that's how we've that's how we've gotten here, and that's how we're you know, looking towards the future and getting ready to do some really cool new stuff. So you were basically told to volunteer. Yeah, I mean, I was voluntold in a lot of ways. Now, <laughs> you know, as a, as a 4-H-er, they, they don't necessarily do that as much. Um, you kind of get to pick and choose. Now, now you've got your service projects, you do your highway, highway cleanups. Uh, our club had a section on Highway 34 outside of Creston. That was our spot that twice a year, you know, but, but could I have opted out of that? Yeah, I could have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and having a, and having a partially blind kid walking along the side of a U.S. highway, picking up trash, you know, maybe that wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but uh, my parents made sure I was safe. The the club leaders and other members uh, helped me do the things that I needed to do so I could be successful, even at something like that. And it, it was valuable. It past the communication skills, it it taught you elements of respect. It taught you elements of 
community, you know, all of these good things. Mm -hmm. So you didn't grow up saying, gee, when I get a little bit older, I think I want to be in the nonprofit world. No. And, And in fact, I was probably saying the opposite. Okay. And I love what you said about all your experiences helped you and help you now in what you're doing. Because I think most volunteer managers find that we find that everything we've done up until this point has some sort of value in how we operate now. I really wanted to ask you about this. In your book, Calling All Volunteers, and if you don't plug it shamelessly, I will. It is on Amazon, Calling All Volunteers by Dr. Jesse Bollinger. What stood out to me in the beginning was you added to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you added your own, you call it the Bollinger hierarchy of needs as it applies to volunteers, and you added education, mental health, and work. Why was that so important to you? Well, in the beginning, it wasn't necessarily important to me. Um, Mm -hmm. Any of your listeners that have gotten a PhD know that one of the things that happens to you is you have to write a dissertation on something that either hasn't been studied before, has been under-researched, or that you want to challenge. Mm-hmm. And originally, I wanted to study youth. I wanted to talk about how youth selected volunteer or selected their volunteer roles. Mm-hmm. And I was essentially told that if I wanted to study youth, I would never graduate. Which, which is honestly, it's it's the truth because I would have been so tied up in legal uh, legal red tape by the Institutional Review Board at the university that. I honestly would have ran out of money. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it would have taken a very long time because they're a protected population. Dr. Dr. Lynn Jones said, hey, what about studying seniors? What about studying people that are retired? And I said, you know, that's interesting because I've always, I've always had friends that were older than me. I've got many friends that are retired. So it's, it's interesting, but, but what's the problem? And she said, you'll find it. So I started to look and education and work started to pop out. And, and I thought, well, this is great. You know, my master's thesis was on employee motivation. So this, this made sense. I value education. And so I start to read and research and, and take notes and talk to people. And then all this mental health stuff started to pop out. And here's the thing, Meridian. When we hear the term mental health, we use it wrong in our culture. Mm-hmm. Mental health actually means that mental mental illness exists. It means you're sick. It means that you need help. Come to find out that there's really, truly, in the social sciences, no definition of mental health. And so my mentor said, you need to be the one to do this. And, you know, the dictionary kind of talks about it maybe a little closer to how I talk about it, which is quality of life, uh, happiness. As a mainstream culture, we're, we're not talking about it that way. And, and so that's what we're trying to change. And so that's where the dissertation came from. And honestly, I never thought I would write a book. Maybe when I was retired, you know, I, I'm a good writer. I enjoy writing. I always have. But I had some preconceived notions surrounding writing a book. I thought you had to have certain skill sets. And in some ways you do, but in some ways you don't. So eventually, uh, I had somebody pull me aside and I tell this story in the book. 
I had somebody pull me aside and he, he basically said, shut up and write the darn book. And I, and I changed some language there, but, uh, that's what he said. So I said, you know what, fine, I'll challenge myself and I'll write the book. Do you find that in defining mental health, which is so vague and broad as you, you brought up, sometimes people will talk about it as well-being or as mindfulness. So we in the volunteer management sector talk an awful lot about the perks and benefits and mental health you know, it helps your well-being to be a volunteer. Is that something that you found as well? Yeah. So I think you you mentioned mindfulness, mm-hmm. and one of the one of the problems with research, uh, and, and I fell into this trap uh, writing the dissertation. One of the problems with research is at some point you have to say enough is enough. Need to publish uh, what I've been writing. And so inherently what you do is you leave things out. The beauty, the beauty of that is when you write, when you start something like this at the dissertation level, you write a section specific to future research. And one of the things that I really focused on in the future research was the continued research into the mental health piece. I have, I I am well familiar with, with mindfulness. Okay. Uh, I know a lot of people that are really good at it. Uh, I, I particularly am not good at it necessarily, but uh, I am I am blessed to have some new resources just even in the last week or two that have come my way to start to educate myself about mindfulness. And, and so I, I do find that it's an important factor. And I think probably in the next year or two uh, with, with some of the things that are coming down the pipe for uh, for me and, and for the research that, that we're probably going to expand that definition and maybe twist things in a little bit different direction, uh, here real soon. You know, you reference, you had studied or researched, uh, Gretchen Rubin's happiness project. And it made me wonder, do, does volunteering make people happy or do happy people volunteer? Yeah, so I have a great feeling about it. Uh, you know, I was so I was so blessed to have Gretchen. Uh, Gretchen's work kind of dropped in my lap by accident during uh, after actually after the research process had really concluded, and I was kind of trying to figure out what was next. You, you ask if volunteering makes people happy or if happy people volunteer. Well, I, I think it I think it rolls both ways, mm-hmm. but we know. We know from research that volunteering can have significant health benefits to individuals. And I, and I really feel like we're going to see a time where doctors are going to potentially be prescribing volunteerism. We're already starting to see, um, I'll use the community of Preston and our Healthy Hometown Initiative as an example. We're already seeing doctors prescribing exercise instead mm-hmm. of medication. My hope would be in the next three to five years, maybe we'd start to see volunteerism prescription. You, you kind of lead to another issue here, and that is getting people to volunteer can be difficult. And one of the things that we need to do, especially with somebody that is unhappy, uh, somebody that maybe has some sort of uh, low-end medical, medically diagnosed mental illness, 
we need to encourage them. We need to walk with them through the beginnings of their volunteerism journey. You know, they're going to say no, they're going to resist. And we need to say, no, uh, we need you to come. I, I need you to come with me on a Saturday. Uh, I'm doing a two-hour shift uh, at whatever organization, but come with me for an hour. What inherently, I think, happens when people try this is they say, I really enjoyed this. I'll come back. When we talk about the education, work, mental health pieces, as a volunteer manager uh, would learn uh, in the book, if they really listen to that person about their past experiences and reach into kind of maybe the forgotten areas or the areas that the person hasn't thought about for a long time, they can come up with projects that the organization really needs that might be getting missed that that person would be really good at. Yeah, so so very good stuff. That brings up a couple of things for me. Anyway, I'll try and remember both of them. But the first one that came to mind was, where does this responsibility lie? And I know that's a simplistic question. Do you think that our our volunteers, our existing volunteers, are would be the avenue for, let's say, a volunteer manager to say to them, do you have any friends who are that would benefit from coming along with you and volunteering? Do we need to reach out to mental health counselors and say, hey, you know, we're open to having people come? Um, do you have any thoughts on where the direction of that could go? Well, I think I think it could go both directions, mm-hmm. and, and I think it could go both directions because in in larger nonprofits that have well-established volunteer management programs. I think you could go to the volunteers and say, this is what we would like you to do. Uh, Kind of like what you do if you're raising money. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to your fundraising committee and you're going to say, give us the names of five or 10 people that you know. And then we're going to talk with those five or 10 and we're going to ask them for maybe two people each. And we're going to, and we're going to kind of mushroom, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in larger communities, that's great. Now in smaller communities, uh, we, we have we have a problem. And the problem that we have is that the nonprofits do not always think that they need volunteers mm-hmm. or and that and that's bad. But then it gets worse. They say nobody wants to volunteer. But here's what you find out when you have the conversation with them. They find you find out that they're not asking anybody and they're not sharing what their needs are. They're not sharing what their desires are. They are so focused on, oh, we don't have any money. Oh, we don't know how we're going to stay open instead of saying, you know what? We are open. And if we had volunteers, we could do things differently. So maybe we, maybe our executive director, instead of, you know, teaching six of our classes and running the front desk, maybe that person could actually be an executive director uh, and, and work with donors and write grants and and these different things, but they don't think that way. No, they don't. And I, that's got that's got to change. And, and here's the thing: uh, here here comes the shameless plug of the book. I talk I talk in the book about our our six living generations, and I write an entire chapter on Generation Alpha. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on alphas. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll just say that alphas, for people that don't know, are born 2010 
to about 2025, depending on how you want to look at it. There's a couple different dates that float out there. If we as nonprofit managers, as volunteer managers, do not get our acts together yesterday, we are going to lose an entire generation because guess what? We have four-year-olds that are alphas that are already doing things that are basic that adults should have done 20 years ago. We're going to lose them all because guess what? They're going to start their own organizations and we're going to be in the dust trying to figure out what we're doing. Oh my gosh. Um, I also say that I can see that coming. It's clear as a bell. I so agree with you there. We have got to change if we want to survive as volunteer organizations. And I, and I think you're, you're so right. Was I correct in uh, gleaning from your book that the millennials are starting to be a little bit more like the World War II generation. And if I'm correct, how, how is that exactly uh, working out? Well, so, so yeah, so you're absolutely right. And the interesting thing about that, I wrote that not from reading an article, not from anything that would normally happen. I was in I was in Philadelphia for my AmeriCorps Vista training, Volunteers in Service to America. I get on the bus and I go to training and I think they pick us up from the airport. We all get on the bus and we go to the hotel and I'm starting to talk to people and I'm realizing I am old compared to this group. <laughs> and out of the 190 of us, I come to find out I was the third oldest person in the group and I'm 36 years old. Wow. And I start to think, I start to think to myself, you know what? It really seems like these millennials are really wanting things to be back the way they were. And and so we started to talk about when we were kids, you know, things that were really basic about communication and technology and and all of these different things. And then we'd start to talk about how things were when our parents, you know, the boomers were we're kids and, and, and we talk about our grandparents and how simplistic things were and how people actually interacted with each other, truly knew each other. And, and, and so I'm hearing all this. Well, and, and I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. This is, this feels right. You know, maybe I'm not the only one that thinks this way because I thought I was. So then I go home and then I happen to find an article that basically said that. And, which was really interesting. So then, so then the light bulb goes off. Uh, you you mentioned the greatest generation. Well, then I find out that the baby boom generation is actually divided into an A group and a B group. Uh, and, and and we won't go into into all that. You'll have to to read the book for that rationale. But I realized that millennials could probably split A group B group because we have part that want things the way it was, you know, when our grandparents were, were kids and as they grew up, uh, simplistic and all this. And then we have the B group that wants all the technology and, and all the connectedness and all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet the same could be said even about the alphas, because we have a percentage of those where the parents aren't raising them with technology. The other ones, I, I don't have to tell you what the other half's doing. And we've in the volunteer world or volunteer managers can take advantage of that desire to be more connected, more simplistic, more in tune with each other. And 
advertise volunteering as a way to do that. Yes. Yeah. You know, and and that and that brings us that brings us to yet another element that exists here and that element is the way the way we recruit volunteers is is going to have to change. Now here's the thing. Even for our seniors, uh, our our boomers that are retiring, folks that are older, everybody thinks that, well, you've still got to put an ad in the paper. You still need to put a poster up. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but, mm-hmm. but what is being discounted here is that everyone is using technology. In the days of older people not understanding technology, they're over. They're over. And, and in some cases, you know, I, I'm, I'm hearing fewer and fewer people that are in their 60s and 70s. They used to say, well, I need my grandson to teach me this, that kind of thing. Uh, and that still happens. But now sometimes it's going the other way. Uh, and, and sadly, just to show how advanced the Generation Z and the Alphas are, they are even teaching millennials how to do things. Uh, full disclosure, I had to ask my daughter what a certain app was the other day because I had never heard of it and I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and she was fully aware. And I think she even caught on that, uh, you know, dad usually gets this kind of stuff and he's asking me. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've thought about this. I, I, I don't know if this is something that you know, you have given a lot of thought to, but for us volunteer managers, this is going to be critical and is critical. But how do we get organizational leadership to listen? Like you say, you know, stop asking us to put ads in the newspaper under the free section. Stop asking us to operate in a normal that was pretty much okay in the 1980s. How do do we approach senior leadership and convince them that not only what we're doing is outdated, but that we volunteer managers have the skills and the knowledge and the research to back it up and move forward in a way that's going to help the organization? Right. You know, and it's interesting you ask that question because that is that is part of what's going on for me right now mm-hmm. with the book. Uh, I I wrote the book because I wanted to provide new information to nonprofits, and I want to start new conversations. We are we're on a book tour right now in this part of Iowa, and we we talk about two elements of a book tour stop. Uh, and, and when I say we, uh, I mean the people that help me, uh, whether it be uh, my mother that, that drives uh, for some of the events and helps with some of the setup or my wife or, or even my kids that help with different things. We have, we have two things we look at when we do a book tour stop. One is sales, which is usually what people look at. Mm-hmm. But, but the other thing we look at is conversations. And the way we define a sec- successful stop uh, at least the way I define a successful stop on the book tour is were the conversations meaningful and did new things happen? And then we look at, did we sell any books? Which, which has been interesting to explain to people. And so, so like, so like last night we were in Winterset, Iowa, 
I, I'm not even sure what the date is right now, but uh, we were in Winterset and we had, I think seven people maybe. Uh, last night was the 7th of November and we sold one copy of the book, but it was a successful stop because it was one of the most engaged audiences that we've had yet. New things came out of conversations. Issues that I knew existed came out of that conversation that people wanted to talk about. One one of those issues I've been waiting for somebody to say, and I, and I know this to be true already, but to see somebody say it's different. Uh, I had a I had a young gentleman. Uh, he's he was about fifty five. He said, uh, "I have a problem. I've retired, but I I'm busier than when I was working." Which is in the book. Um, I am overcommitted. How do I deal with it? And I said, here's the thing. You have no retirement plan. Because when we look at retirement planning, we look at what? We look at finance. We look at where do we want to live. But nobody sits down on paper and says, what do I want to do? And how do I want to do it? Mm-hmm. And and so, so we're all about starting conversations. So you ask about senior leadership. We're, we're working through how to do that right now because there is resistance. And then knowing who to target is sometimes difficult. And so that's why we started with libraries. And so uh, on the drive home last night, my wife, who assists with a lot of different things on the, on the back end, we were talking about the fact that we are now to a point, uh, the book's been out for, for several months, we're now to a point to start going to nonprofits and, and even schools, because schools are starting to use more and more volunteers and to formalize their volunteers, which is the more important part. And so we're going to be at the beginning of 2020 talking to more senior leadership about, please let us come in and share the ideas. And, you know, the, the way we're going to, to probably have to do it is by saying, we're not going to charge you. Uh, give us five minutes. Uh, we're going to have to do it like uh, I've kind of likened part of this process to what recording artists used to go through back in the 80s and 90s, uh, where they would walk uh, record label to record label on Music Row in Nashville, and they would drop their tapes and they would hope that somebody bid. Uh, mm-hmm. We, you know, as a self-publisher, that's that's kind of what we're having to do because we've done volunteer management the same way for 50 to you know probably 75 years. I honestly, I have yet to find somebody else that's saying, yeah, we need to change this. Uh, and, and so, so yeah, we're going to be doing some door knocking because uh, we're going to have to get some, some attention. So that's kind of, that's kind of where we're at. And, and eventually yeah. I think people will pick up. The other way we do it is by going to conferences and speaking. And then like last week, we were at the Iowa Nonprofit Summit with a booth uh, promoting the book which is an amazing experience. And I thank Volunteer Iowa for that. Have you thought about sharing then some of what your conversations, because I think there would be a wide audience in the volunteer sector for how your conversations went. And especially if you have a, a productive conversation with senior leadership, how did that go? And how did you get to the point where they'd actually say, huh, you have a point or, well, that's interesting instead of, oh, no, no, we've got to do it the way we have, because there's such a, such an awakening in the sector. And the awakening is we know that things have to change. We're just at the point where we're trying to figure out how to get it to change a little faster. 
And so anything on those lines would be extremely helpful. Right. So, so we're in the process right now of revamping uh, my website, jessebolinger.com. And I'm doing it. I, I have, I have strong web design skills, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes you have to step away from something and say, I need outside input. I could have spent thousands of dollars and hired a web designer. I know plenty, but I didn't. I walked two blocks from my house to our local high school. I went into our, what they call the CAST program. It's a service and technology program. And I asked him, I said, will you design our website? And I was introduced to the young lady that does the school's website. She does a real good job. She said, absolutely. And I said, here's what we need. We need a website that helps start conversations, that helps document conversations, that helps bring people to the table to have new conversations. And, and so that's where some of these are going to be documented and, and shared. And I, and what I want to, what I want to see happen, uh, I've learned so much from Gretchen Rubin. One of the things Gretchen is really good at is starting conversations and giving resources. And, and I think that's where this is going to ultimately end up is with resources to help people start and document their conversations and then to share those results. In, in the back of calling all volunteers, both in the print version and the electronic version, which we haven't talked about the electronic version at all, and I want to do that in a second, I give away my initial research questions and a traditional volunteer application, but then an, an application that speaks more to the education, work, and mental health components that organizations can adopt. I would really enjoy hearing from anybody that that adopts or is considering adopting uh, this format, because that's one of the ways we're going to continue to modify and adapt and and, and do these different things that need done. Um, real quick, the electronic version, uh, obviously wanted to go to Amazon Kindle, wanted to be electronic. I thought it was something that I was going to do myself, uh, rural, rural America Press, my publishing company. I thought we were going to do it. I got a phone call from a friend from, from grad school, uh, from PhD. And mm-hmm. he said, Jesse, I, I am now leadership of, uh, of Bel Air Press, a publishing company that is 100% digital. That they don't do any print. And he said, we want to publish calling all volunteers. So I said to my friend, Dr. Tracy Connors, I said, I said, Tracy, uh, we, we don't have a discussion here. If you, if you want this in your catalog, you know, it's yours. And so we did it. Uh, and then my wheel started to turn. And I said to myself, what other formats are we missing? Okay, we're starting conversation, right? We don't want to leave anybody out. We're working on the audio version. But then I realized we're missing one more. Uh, last week at Iowa Nonprofit Summit, I had a conversation with the state, uh, the State Department for the Blind. And we are going to have Calling All Volunteers in Braille. That's great. Yes. And and so I'm really excited. So now we've truly covered every format that I can conceive of. That you can of, think of. You know, ev- eventually we'll hit iBooks as well. Yeah. But but now we've hit print, digital, braille. Uh, other than a text, uh, a book that is interactive, uh, with mm-hmm. which the iBooks version may be uh, in the end, we, we've hit just about every format that I can conceive of. Uh, so So anybody from any audience should be able to interact with this and, and use it as they as they need. 
And what struck me about the application formats at the very end of your book, as you said, you you put in a traditional volunteer application versus, you know, what what you're considering more of a, I, I'm just going to call it more of a modern approach to it. It pivots from an application being about what the organization needs and wants, meaning when are you available, what experience have you had in volunteering, blah, 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 to who are you and how can we engage you and make it more volunteer individual centric. That is the key here is we need to talk about the person. Mm-hmm. And as I've said, as I've said already this morning, we need to talk about that person in terms of their ideas. And we need to be open as managers to creating projects that will benefit the organization that we might be missing have, had we not looked at these desires and ideas of the volunteers. I could not possibly agree with you more. We have such untapped potential in the people that come to us with skills, passions, interests, talents, abilities. And we, if we slot them into predetermined roles, we are missing out on the possibility of expanding not only the reach of the organization, but the ability to accomplish mission goals. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. We have to be open to creating new projects and new avenues for volunteers. Because I I think throw it back to what you said before, the alpha generation and probably the millennial generation are going to just leave us in the dust if we don't. Right. The the other important thing to to remember, you know, there there's a reason why I talk about each generation individually in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason behind that is because each generation, whether whether you know it or not, or as a member of the generation, whether you know it or not, there are certain characteristics of the generation and there are certain issues at the charitable organization level that each generation cares about. So if you have an organization that doesn't do a certain program of uh, you know, I'll use a YMCA, for example, you know, let's say they don't do anything with, with homelessness. That's one of the things that, that alphas really care about. Maybe they're not working directly with the homeless, but if you talk to an alpha, talk to them about your low-income scholarship folks or, or being able to bring access to more people. You know, the Y does not turn anyone away because of their inability to pay. Uh, so have have an alpha help at a a fundraising dinner. Maybe have them take tickets. Maybe have them you know start start with really basic things, and then and then build them into uh, directly helping to raise money. These sorts of things. You know, I, I'll tell you there there are some nine and ten year olds that are really good at talking to people and saying this is the issue I care about, um, and this is what I need you to do. And 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 we're seeing that. Uh, I'm not going to bring I'm not going to bring politics into this as far as what my affiliations are. But but I've seen that this year, uh, even with my oldest daughter, 
you know, she, uh, she can, she can probably run with the best of them because she can go to the door uh, on her own of somebody she doesn't know and say, I need you to pay attention to this candidate. And this is why the same thing can be said for, for nonprofit issues. Here's the issue. And this is why I care. This is why you should care. And this is what you need to, this is what I need you to do. This is the action that you need to take. And what, what struck me was how, how much uh, nonprofits exist in silos and, I'll give give you an example. I worked for a hospice, which, of course, uh, cares for people who are terminally ill and at end of life. But as you work with with people who are terminally ill, you start to see, well, you know, this is not a family's only issue per se. There might be a member of that family who's struggling with depression. There might be a member of that family who is homeless. There might be a member of that family who uh, needs child care. So to me, I was like, our nonprofits uh, focus on one thing when why can't we focus on many things for the better of our community and our volunteers could probably move back and forth fluidly between organizations as well. Well, you, so you, you bring, you, you bring in uh, possibly unintentionally here, you bring in uh, two other, two other issues. Uh, One is the uh, inherent ability for people to volunteer informally. And the fact that, you know, research is terrible about informal volunteerism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's informal because nobody tracks it, but people right. also discount it. Uh, the the other thing you bring in is how volunteers, uh, formal or informal, can help uh, in in many ways that that people maybe don't realize. And you mentioned hospice, which has become uh, really important to me. Uh, one of the things that I left out of my introduction is that as I was finishing the book, and I do mean finishing, we were in final edits. I was uh, I was preparing to start uh, my first round of chemo uh, for stage three cancer. Uh, we didn't get done, and so I was trying to edit and do some writing and and this while I was doing actively doing chemo, and that's one of the reasons we finished the book late. But through that experience, I realized exactly what you just said. My family all had their own issues. Uh, you know, my wife needed certain things, and 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 we've got two girls uh, that fortunately were in virtual public school at the time, and so they were able to do school wherever. But they still had their needs. And, you know, they had technology needs. We had we had to have certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to make sure our internet connection was good. We had transportation needs. We had food needs. We had all these different things. Part of that came from informal volunteers, uh, but but part of it also came from a nonprofit, uh, an international nonprofit called Time Banking. Uh, Time Banking essentially is an international barter system that has local chapters. And so I would time bank various things. And so... uh, you know, let's say we we needed a meal. Uh, instead of just telling somebody, "Hey, I would like you to you know, can you donate this? Can you can you please drop off a casserole?" I would time bank so they would get some credit, and then I would do something later uh, for the group and these things. And especially in small communities, those are important factors to look at and talk about. 
And as you say, you know, the the wave of the future is going to be very different from what it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. So yeah, we, we've got to keep moving forward and, and, and bringing new ideas to the table. Exactly. And, 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 and unfortunately, part of new ideas is that people are going to have to actually listen and implement Right. And then when you implement, be willing to adjust yes. and change. And that is actually probably the real problem is that people do not want to change. It's, I, I think especially, I, I don't know what you find, but I think especially busy people, because uh, to them, even though a change may be the best thing in the world and will help you, it's like, I, I just can't. I'm on, a, I'm on a hamster wheel. I'm running and taking me everything I've got just to run on this wheel. You're, yeah. at, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother discussion. But if you talk to me individually, I will be very adamant about my love of reading. Uh, that's one of the things that, that makes me happy. And, mm-hmm. and there are some great things out there that talk about just what you what you just said. Thank you. So it has been a, a distinct honor to talk to you and to for you to share with us uh, some of your groundbreaking research, really, and your ideas on how to engage uh, new modern volunteers, how to incorporate the idea of well-being, mental health, whatever you want to term it or whatever people out there want to term it into engaging volunteers and making it more volunteer-centric, how to uh, move into the new world of volunteering and not be left behind. Is there... an and, and let me ask you this. I would love it if uh, maybe a couple of months down the line after you've had some of these conversations or when you have had some of these conversations, if you'd be willing to chat with us again about how those conversations went with, with senior leadership and nonprofits. Absolutely. And, yeah. I, would, I would definitely do this again. I would love this. And also, is there anything else that you want to leave us us with something I didn't touch on or something I didn't, you know, ask uh, properly. No. So, so we've touched on, we've touched on everything. Uh, okay, we, we've great. touched on each element of the book. I, you know, the only thing we probably didn't touch on from the book was the theory of planned behavior. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, but I want people that the, the theory of planned behavior is something that people really need to see mm-hmm. uh, to, to fully understand, you know, the basics of it is that if you intend to do something, you're more likely to do it. Uh, that's the very, very, very basic part of it. Uh, but, but we've touched on a lot of things and, and I hope that this is the beginning to a lot of conversations. Uh, but what I also want to say and, and, uh, feel free to put my contact information in the show notes or whatever it may be. Absolutely. I am happy. I am happy to visit with people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by Skype, by phone, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm happy to start conversations online, uh, facebook.com slash doctor. Jesse, uh, I believe it's Dr. Jesse Obolinger is the Facebook. Uh, it's Dr. J if you just search it, the letter J, and and start conversations that way. I love going to organizations and speaking, and, and would be happy to make any arrangements that I can to make that happen. You know, so so this is the beginning. This is the beginning of something, and and I do think it's just the beginning, and I want to see what other people do with it. 
And um, once again, Dr. Bollinger, where can, I know I got my copy from Amazon, where can folks find your book, Calling All Volunteers? All right. So we're on Amazon, print and Kindle. Mm-hmm. The uh, Bel Air Press website uh, does also have the electronic version. Uh, Barnes and Noble online. Uh, the Amazon and Barnes and Noble are the two big places. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, with the rollout of my new website, uh, we'll see how that goes. So people definitely want to keep an eye on jessebollinger.com for updates as well. Um, if you're in, if you're in Iowa, if you're in Southern Iowa. Uh, we do have in Creston uh, a couple of locations that, that have the book. And then if you're coming through through Iowa on Interstate 35, headed south, coming through Lamoni, the uh, the Amish country store uh, and the Maid Rite just off the interstate uh, did at least at one point have copies. And as far as I know, they still do. Uh, we haven't we haven't had any more go to them. Uh, they had a number of copies on hand. If if somebody's listening to this and wants to have copies at their location, uh, I'm more ha- more than happy to have those conversations uh, as well. Well, thank you so so much. Really appreciate it. I know I've learned a lot, and uh, good luck with all your continuing research and conversations. And we will touch base in the near future. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bowling. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Big thank you to Alternate Timelines for the use of their music. For more volunteer management talk, or if you just want to reach out to me, please visit my website, volunteerplanetalk.com. Or you can catch me at Meridian Swift on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Meridian Swift. Thank you and bye-bye.